Um, I'm charged with a very difficult task because there were uh, two very amazing papers that preceded mine. And uh, so in many ways I'm set up for the fall. Whatever will come after will, won't be as good as the first two, that's for sure. So as a way of smoothing myself, and I'd like to begin with a poem. Uh, in so many ways, this poem it, uh, speaks to the theme of the conference. Thank you. It speaks to the theme of the conference and also the title of my lecture. Uh, these verses come from the great 14th century uh, master of Persian poetry, Hafez, uh, who is famously known as the tongue of the unseen or the interpreter of the unseen, the al Ghaib. He says the following. در آسمان نه عجب گر به گفته حافظ سرود زهرا به رقص آورد مسیحاه را In the heavens it is no wonder if through the words of حافظ the song of Venus causes Jesus himself to dance. There are indeed a number of ways in which these verses can be understood. Uh, let me note here that Venus in Persian literature symbolizes a celestial musician while Jesus, who resides in Venus, often represents love for God. It is as if Hafez is trying to say that through his words, which echo the unseen, the very heavens sing of the divine love contained within them, thereby allowing the sacred dance of love to take its course. Yet there is a special something that connects Hafez's words with this dance of love. This special something is what in Sufism is known as walaya, which you've heard about, and this will refer to sainthood or friendship with God. And as you've already seen, of course, Jesus has a very special role to play with respect to Walaya. This Arabic term comes from a root which connotes proximity, friendship, taking charge, and offering assistance. In fact, the words which are formed from this root number over 200 in the Quran. In Muslim hagiology, the term Wali, a noun derived from the same root structure, is used to denote a saint or a friend of God. But as the semantic field of the Arabic term suggests, to be a wali means at once to be friends with God and to be near God, while also conveying other possible related meanings, such as being protected by God. Given these considerations, we can say that the term sanctity seems to capture well what is at stake when we speak of Waliya. For Ibn Arabi, the saints or the people of sanctity are the heirs to the prophets, as we've already seen Zachary uh, speak uh, of so eloquently. This principle is in accordance with the well-known tradition which he also mentioned, in which the Prophet Muhammad says that the knowers, the ulama, are the heirs to the prophets. So it is specifically from the prophetic inheritance that the saints derive their spiritual rank. In fact, it's a prophetic legacy which allows for sanctity to continue even after prophecy has ceased. And of course, you'll recall that in the Quran 3340, uh, the Prophet is described as the seal of the prophets, Khatam al-Dabiyin. It just says there is a seal of prophecy, so too is there a seal of saints, Khatam al-Awliya. In the early history of Sufism, the great master, Hakim Tirmidhi, who died in roughly 910 of the Common Era, wrote about the seal of sanctity, but not, uh, did not develop it excuse me, uh, in any particular manner. Rather, he left it to posterity to solve his highly enigmatic questions pertaining to the nature or the identity of the seal. It seems that Ibn Arabi is the first person to have taken up this challenge, answering Tirmidhi point by point in a separate treatise, and then reworking this treatise into chapter 73 of his magnum opus, the Futuhat Makiya, Meccan Revelations. Mary's doctrine of the seal of sanctity is certainly one of the most difficult aspects of his thought. His unique contribution here lies in this two-tier distinction of the seal of sanctity. There is a universal or general seal, also known as the absolute seal, and then there is the Mohammedan or specific seal, which is also known as a restricted seal. 
As we venture into the topic of Ibn Arabi's understanding of sanctity, we should keep in mind the intimate relationship that Ibn Arabi shares with Jesus, again, which you've heard about uh, yesterday and today. And I'm going to repeat some of the details, but that's okay. The uh, repetition is good for believers. Not only was uh, Jesus Ibn Arabi's first teacher, but as Ibn Arabi himself notes in the Futuhat, Jesus had a special concern for him throughout his life. He says, Jesus was my first master through whose hands I turned to return to God. He, had great, he has great solicitude for me and does not forget about me for even a single moment. It is thus no surprise that in Ibn Arabi's writings, the aforementioned universal seal of sanctity is Jesus, while the specific seal of sanctity is none other than Ibn Arabi himself. Since Jesus in Islamic doctrine is expected to return at the end of time, when he returns, he will serve the function of promulgating the law of the Prophet Muhammad. And a seal of sanctity in a universal sense, his function will be to ensure that sanctity in general is sealed. As Ibn Arabi states, Jesus will, to cite him again, seal both the cycle of the kingdom and universal sanctity. As for the Muhammadan seal, his function is to seal the sanctity that is derived from the legacy of the Prophet himself. Ibn Arabi also makes it clear that just as Jesus as a prophet comes after Muhammad, but is subordinate to him at the end of time, so too will the saints who come after Ibn Arabi in the Muslim community be subordinate to Ibn Arabi himself. The idea of being a seal then has to do with finality in one way or another. The seal of prophets means that there is no prophet to come after the Prophet Muhammad. The seal of universal sanctity means that there will be no saints at the end of time after the appearance of Jesus who occupy the highest level of saints, namely the rank of the solitary ones or the afrad. Uh, and Ibn Arabi also uh, calls that station the maqam al-qurba, the station of proximity. And the seal of Muhammadan sanctity means that there will be no saint in the Muslim community after this seal's appearance too, as Claude Adas puts it, have direct access to the strictly Muhammadan heritage. And unlike those saints who come after the seal of universal sanctity, the saints that arise in the Muslim community after the death of the seal of Muhammadan sanctity can attain to the highest level of saints, namely that of being solitaries or the aforementioned afrad. Needless to say, many individuals who came after Ibn Arabi had to come to terms with this highly complex understanding of sanctity. The great Shia metaphysician Sayyid Haider al-Muli, who died in roughly 1385, uh, and who was incidentally the contemporary of Hafez, with whose words we began, uh, um, has been haunted, like many other authors, by Ibn Arabi's dominating intellectual and spiritual presence, which held sway over learned Islamic discourse in traditional Muslim civilization for over 500 years from North Africa to China. Yet what makes Amuli's case so unique with respect to Ibn Arabi's doctrine of sanctity was the manner in which Amuli, a pious Tawrishi, also had to square Ibn Arabi's treatment of the topic with his belief in the Imams, who in Shiism are the spiritual successors of the Prophet and therefore the repositories and embodiments of sanctity. In Shiism, the term walaya primarily designates the sanctity and spiritual authority of the imams, who are infallible and divinely designated to fulfill their charge as the heirs of the Prophet. As Maria Dekaki suggests so well, the word charisma works particularly uh, well as a translation of walaya in this context. Thus, while any person in Sufism can become a wali, the function of walaya as such in Shiism is only open to the prophets and imams. At the same time, walaya also plays an important religious, communal, and social role in Shia life and thought. Again, I refer to Maria Dukaki's wonderful book that's outside there uh, in the hallway, Charismatic Community. Of course, there's also a great deal of overlap between Sufism and Shiism by virtue of Walaya's initiatory and sanctifying function. 
And this shared aspect of wallahi, namely sanctity, is what I will now focus on with respect to Ibn Arabi and Amuli. Despite their different understandings of Islam, for both of these authors, it can be said that sanctity functions as a musical note of central significance to the Song of Life. Amuli's main contention with Ibn Arabi on the question of sanctity is not over the nature of sanctity having a seal or seals. Indeed, like many of Ibn Arabi's Sunni followers, Amuli, who has the utmost reverence for Ibn Arabi, wholeheartedly embraces the notion of there being two seals of sanctity. Where Amuli feels that Ibn Arabi errs is in his identification of these seals. With respect to the seal of universal sanctity in particular, Amuli maintains that this can be none other than Imam Ali, the first Shiite Imam and the beloved first cousin and son-in-law of the Prophet. In one of his main works, Amuli ventures to discuss the seal of universal sanctity by providing some important citations from chapter 73 of the Futuhad. It'll be recorded that chapter 73 is the one in which Ibn Arabi tackles Tirmidhi's questions on the identity of the seal of saints. In the text in question, Ibn Arabi provides us with the logic for why there needs to be a seal to end the cycle of humanity. Just as God sealed the revealed religions with the coming of the Prophet, the seal of the Prophets, and there are therefore no religions or Prophets after him, so too is there a seal of universal sanctity, which began with Adam and is sealed with Jesus. Ibn Arabi here glosses the well-known Quranic verse in which Adam and Jesus are likened. This is 359 of the Quran. Ibn Arabi says, The seal is similar to the beginning. And then he cites the verse, Truly the likeness of Jesus in the sight of God is that of Adam. He continues, So he seals with the like of what he began. Amuli then provides us with a pertinent passage from Dawud al-Qaysari, an important member of the school of Ibn Arabi who died in 1350. Here, Qaysari sets out some basic definitions that help guide the rest of the discussion. So Qaysari says, Know that sanctity is divided into absolute and restricted, that is, general and specific. For with respect to itself, sanctity is a divine quality in a universal sense. But with respect to its dependence on the prophets and saints, it is restricted. That which is restricted is supported by that which is universal, and that which is universal is the outward aspect of that which is restricted. Thus the sanctity of all the prophets and saints are parts of universal sanctity. Just as the prophetic functions of the prophets are parts of universal prophecy. That's a pretty nice summation that he gives, so you can see why he cites it. Amuli then provides us with his argument and also connects Imam Ali's widespread spiritual influence amongst the Sufi orders as proof of his being the seal of universal sanctity. So he says, It is also well known that this ruling of universal sanctity does not escape its general scope until someone who can make it specific does so. So Ali is the universal saint and the seal of saints, all of them, because no saint comes after him except that he is upon his station and rank. That is, no saint comes after him except that he displays something of him and is one of his representatives. This is why the initiatory cloak, khirqa, of every Sufi sheikh is only ascribed to him and their paths only trace back to his representatives. And this is not entirely the case because at least amongst one brand, uh, branch of the Naqshbandiya, Sufi order, their lineage goes back to Abu Bakr, the first caliph of Sunni Islam. Next, Amuli presents some sayings of the Prophet and Ali, which again point up Ali's exalted rank. Amongst the traditions that Amuli cites in this context, one is a statement of the Prophet which reads, Ali was sent with every Prophet secretly, but with me openly. Amuli glosses this saying on the tongue of the Prophet as follows. Its meaning is that the universal sanctity which was specified for Ali secretly flowed in every messenger, just as the prophecy which was specified for me openly flowed in them until I openly appeared in the world of the visible and Ali likewise appeared with me. 
Amuli continues to explain what is meant by this again in the words of the Prophet. The universal sanctity that is specified for Ali is that about which he reported in his statement, I was a saint while Adam was between water and clay. The universal prophecy which is specified for me is that about which I have reported in my statement, I was a prophet while Adam was between water and clay. The latter saying commonly figures in discussions on the doctrine of the Mohammedan reality as it serves to highlight the primordial nature of the Prophet. The reality of the Prophet has always been there and it percolates through the generations of the Prophets until it finally becomes manifest in the physical person of Muhammad. Amalie, however, recasts this tradition in terms of Ali's sanctity. Just as the Prophet in his reality of being a Prophet was there before the first Prophet, namely Adam, Ali likewise was there as a saint before the first saint, namely Adam. This would be a surprising text on its own since it is a rather uncommon one in Islamic literature. But Amalie tells us that the report in both its meaning and linguistic form is actually from Ibn Arabi, but with respect to Jesus and not Ali, and he's correct, it's from a passage in Ibn Arabi's Futuhat. Uh, we thus have Ibn Arabi and Amalie laying claim to this particular tradition because for each of them, it clearly identifies the seal of sanctity, that is a saint who is there first but who comes last, just as this version of the tradition in which the prophet is figured is meant to identify the seal of prophets, that is, the Prophet who was there first and then comes last. Amali then cites Ibn Arabi with an important point in mind, namely that the Muhammadan reality has two dimensions, outward and inward, which correspond to prophecy and sanctity respectively. So this is a very long citation, but it's very important for what is to follow. He says, It is well known that the Shaykh Ibn Arabi deems universal prophecy and universal sanctity as two specified qualities of the Muhammadan reality. For the Muhammadan reality has two aspects. An outward aspect, which is specified for prophet, by prophecy, and an inward aspect, which is specified by sanctity. And the shaykh mentions that this sanctity is acquired by the seal through a true inheritance, as in his statement, and he cites Ibn Arabi here, with respect to his sanctity, the relationship of the seal of messengers with the seal of universal sanctity is like the relationship of the prophets and messengers with him. For the seal of messengers is the saint and the messenger prophet, while the seal of saints, in a universal sense, is the saint inheritor, the one who takes from the source, who witnesses the levels of existence, all the while being one of the perfections of the seal of messengers, Muhammad. There is some ambiguity in Ibn Arabi's words, where he says, with respect to his sanctity, the relationship of the seal of messengers with the seal of sanctity is like the relationship of the prophets and messengers with him. Amali will return to this particular point later on in his discussion. And we will thus follow his lead and remain silent on this statement until it resurfaces later. But what is clear from Amalie's words is that the Muhammadan reality contains the entire scope of sanctity, whose outward nature manifests itself in the form of prophecy, and whose inward nature manifests itself in the form of sanctity proper. Thus the outward form of prophecy and the inward nature of sanctity are both present in the Prophet. When his physical person leaves the world, prophecy is sealed with him. But sanctity as the inner dimension of the prophet of the Muhammadan reality continues. Given that the seal of universal sanctity is a manifestation of the inward dimension of the Muhammadan reality, our authors are quick to point out that he is nevertheless still an heir to the prophet and thus inferior to him. This is because to restate the prophet contains in his person both the outward and inward aspects of the Muhammadan reality, whereas the saint who is his heir only contains uh, in, in himself or in his person, a lesser degree of its inward dimension. On these details, Amuli and Ibn Arabi stand in agreement. Where they disagree is, of course, on the identity of the seal of universal sanctity. 
Amalie offers his most pointed argument in the following important passage where he states the only two ways in which Jesus can actually be the seal of universal sanctity. And he says, it can either be with respect to his spiritual relationship with the Prophet or with respect to his formal relationship with him. According to both propositions, Ali has more right and is more fitting since his spiritual relationship with the Prophet is known to everyone and is known to be more abundant than that of Jesus. Likewise is the case with Ali's formal relationship with the Prophet. Yet the person with the greatest formal relationship to the Prophet would not, by virtue of this fact alone, be eligible to be specified with the seal of universal sanctity. Thus, although Amalie presents two possibilities on how Jesus can be specified with the seal of universal sanctity, it seems quite clear that what is really being implied is that the only person who can be specified with the seal of universal sanctity is the one who has both the greatest spiritual and formal relationship to the Prophet, and that can be none other than Ali. With respect to Ali's superior spiritual relationship to the Prophet, Amalie produces several arguments to support his claim. These arguments testify to Ali's special rank, which belongs to neither Jesus nor any of the other prophets and messengers. The first of these is a version of a famous Shi'i tradition in which the prophet says, God created my soul and Ali's soul before creating other human beings as he so willed. Then the prophet states that uh, his soul and Ali's soul were passed on from pure womb to pure womb, untainted with the defilement of associating partners with God and submersion in the life of ignorance until they became manifest in the loins of their respective fathers. The tradition ends with the Prophet's well-known words, Ali is from me and I am from him. His self is my self, and obedience to him is obedience to me. He who angers him does not love me, and he who loves him does not anger me. To be sure, shortly after citing this tradition, Amalie provides us with, what, with one that is almost identical and more well-known, but with emphasis now on the Prophet and Ali being created from the same light, which stood before God for 14,000 years before God created Adam. Amalie further argues that this exalted spiritual relationship that Ali has with the Prophet is confirmed by Ibn Arabi himself in chapter 6 of the Futuhat. This is when he really starts doing some interesting hermeneutical work. In the discussion in question, Ibn Arabi engages in a detailed explanation of the manner in which God created the universe through the primordial dust, Haba, also known as the cloud, Amma. Both of these terms assume, of course, technical significance in Ibn Arabi's writings. Within the primordial dust, all things receive the light of God's self-disclosure in accordance with their preparedness, istidad. The most receptive to God's light is the reality of Muhammad, also known as the first intellect, which is a, a key, an important term in Islamic philosophy, al-aqal al-awwal. Although the relationship between the primordial dust and the reality of the Prophet is complex in Ibn Arabi's thought, the main point to come away with is that Amuli would like to demonstrate how, by Ibn Arabi's own confession, Ali is the nearest of all beings to the reality of the Prophet, the first of God's creation. To illustrate his position, Amali continues with his citation from Ibn Arabi. He says, Muhammad is the master of the cosmos, all of it, and the first to emerge in existence. His existence was from that divine light, the primordial dust, and the universal reality. In the primordial dust, his entity and the entity of the cosmos came to exist. And the nearest of men to him, and the nearest of all of the prophets, is Ali ibn Abi Talib. Amuli then draws the natural conclusion with respect to, uh, to Ali in the following lengthy but telling passage. And I guess we can put uh, natural in, in quotation marks here. He says, This is a definitive statement and a clear cutting pr proof concerning Ali's being the seal of universal sanctity, since it affirms that the Muhammadan reality has two aspects an outward aspect and an inward one. And the inner aspect is tied to the saint who is the seal, 
the one who is the closest of men to the Prophet and is one of his perfections. For, for other than Ali, none has this proximity, nor this specificity. This is especially the case since allusions have been related from the Prophet, which indicate this, such as his statements, I and Ali are from one light, and I and Ali are from one tree, both of which indicate that the two of them are from one light and from one reality. But Al-Malik even goes so far as to explicitly say that it is not only his own kashf or unveiling which has revealed the truth of the situation. Rather, Ibn Arabi's own kashf also testifies to the same reality. And I guess we can put again testifies in quotation marks. He says, the unveiling of the Shaykh Ibn Arabi and his masters is that Jesus has more right and is more fitting to be the seal of universal sanctity. Our unveiling and the unveiling of other masters is that Ali has more right and is more fitting for this rank. Along with this, if you were to reflect, you would come to recognize that the unveiling of the Shaykh also bears witness to this fact. To support his point, Amali revisits a key text from Ibn Arabi's Fusus al-Hikam, Ringstones of Wisdom. Uh, the main thrust of this passage, it will be recalled, is that there is a fundamental distinction between the seal of messengers and the seal of sanctity, and that the latter inherits the inward reality of the former, and Amalie proceeds through what looks like a paradox to show how Ibn Arabi's unveiling supports his own unveiling on the same question. To recount Ibn Arabi's statement, he says, uh, cite him one more time on this issue, with respect to his sanctity, the relationship of the seal of messengers with the seal of sanctity is like the relationship of the prophets and messengers with him. These words are glossed by Amulli as meaning that the dependency that the prophets and messengers have upon the seal of messengers for their prophecy and messengerhood is the same kind of dependency that the seal of messengers has upon the seal of sanctity for his own prophecy and messengerhood. This interpretation given by Amulli is indeed in keeping with what Ibn Arabi says in this section of the Fusus, even though Amulli does not cite the entire section. On the face of it, these statements would seem to imply that the seal of sanctity is above the seal of messengers or prophets, and this indeed is how they were taken by some of Ibn Arabi's most important medieval detractors, such as Ibn Taymiyyah, who died in 1385, and this was a particular point uh, with which he was not pleased. At least his, his understanding of it. Sorry, 1328 he died. Commenting on this very uh, passage and a cluster of other associated texts from Ibn Arabi's writings, Michel Khodchevik notes with respect to the seal of messengers that the dependence in question here is not to cite him with regard to another being, but to the subordination within himself of a visible aspect to the hidden, which is to say of the nabuah or prophecy, which is an attribute of created being and comes to an end, to the walai or sanctity, which is a divine attribute and exists to eternity. As we shall see, this observation is very much in keeping with what the, point, uh, the points that Amali will also make within the context of his own imamology. Now what Khodhevik is referring to here is uh, when he speaks about Walaya continuing and Nabuwa coming to an end uh, is the idea that you find in Ibn Arabi's writings also in the writings of many other authors in traditional Sufism in which uh, Wali is a name of God therefore it persists forever whereas Nabi is not a name of God therefore it has a strictly temporal and earthbound function. Amuli says that Ibn Arabi's statements in the Fasus can only be correct if we were to posit that the reality of both the seal of prophets and the seal of sanctity are one, but with an outward and inward aspect, which would belong to the seal of prophets and the seal of sanctity respectively. Thank you, that, that was much better. For if the inner reality of these seals were not conceived as being one and the same, this would mean that prophecy and sanctity are two separate things. If they were the case then Ibn Arabi's words would entail that Jesus, in fact, has preponderance over the Prophet, which is not permissible. The same would also, in this case, apply to Ali. 
Nevertheless, Amuli maintains that such a description as we find in the passage in question applies more fully to Ali primarily because Jesus is not, as Ibn Arabi says, one of the perfections of the seal of the prophets, whereas Ali is. This must be taken to mean that, as Amuli sees it, Jesus is not an, a saint inheritor and thus cannot be counted as being one of the prophet's perfections as such, since the perfection of the prophet relates directly to his inward nature, which is sanctity, namely the inward dimension of the Mohammedan reality. Jesus for Amuli would then correspond to being a perfection of the Prophet's outward nature, namely the outward dimension of the Muhammadan reality, insofar as they are both prophets. Amuli also tells us that the seal of sanctity receives his knowledge of God without the need of an intermediary, wasita, which corresponds or corroborates Ibn Arabi's statement that the seal of sanctity, as he says, takes from its source and sees the matter as it truly is. The difference here has to do with the embodied form of the Prophet's. Put differently, it is because of the outward form of the Mohammedan reality that there needs to be an outward medium for the revelation. But with respect to the inward reality of the Prophet, there need not be a medium because of the inward nature of the receptacle. This again calls to mind the distinction which Amuli makes following Ibn Arabi between the outward and inward aspect of the Mohammedan reality with the former corresponding to prophecy and the latter to sanctity. To be sure, Amali offers a way of approach while also reiterating his stance on Ali as the inward nature of the Prophet and thus the seal of universal sanctity. He says here, the etiquette or adab here is to say that the inward nature of the Prophet, which is the station of sanctity, takes the effusion, fade, from God without any medium other than himself. And God then effuses this knowledge through the medium of Gabriel to his outward form, which is the station of prophecy. However, the station of his sanctity in the world of manifestation is specified for the seal of universal sanctity, the one who is created from the Prophet's special light, who is his spirit and reality. As he said, I and Ali are from one light. In accordance with this position, this station does not apply to Jesus. It is my hope that I have been able to display the underlying logic behind Amuli's impressive response to Ibn Arabi on the question of the seal of universal sanctity. What is just as remarkable is the etiquette or adab which Amuli the Shi'i displays towards his illustrious Sunni predecessor even after vehemently disagreeing with him. And I've, I've left out some of the details of this disagreement but he gets, he gets he sometimes will even launch into invective of some sort even denying that Ibn Arabi that the Fusus came to him from the Prophet because it would undermine his point otherwise. But yet like a true gentleman at the end of his discussion on the question of sanctity Amuli seeks to offer a humble apology. He says, If the Shaykh is perfect in relation to others on another occasion, on this occasion he is deficient in relation to others. But this does not diminish from the perfection of the one who is perfect, because the perfect one does not have to be perfect on every level, just as Ibn Arabi himself has indicated. He's referring to a passage in the Fusus. Nevertheless, the statement of ours and the like of it is bad etiquette from us towards him. For he is the sheikh of the tribe and the head of the folk, the Sufis. So we seek pardon concerning what we have said. And then he cites an Arabic saying, the plea for pardon before noble men is accepted. To be sure, Amuli's respectful engagement with Ibn Arabi can also be instructive in a context outside of scholarship, namely politics. When there are so many ugly sounds reverberating from parts of the Muslim world, as a result of the violent discord between Sunnis and Shi'is. Celebrating that key musical note, which is sanctity, can help adjust such a cacophony so that there can again ring from that world a concordant and beautiful melody. Thank you.